sports fans. It is July, and we are still in World Cup action, but this is the Stars and Stripes FC podcast, episode three. Uh, it is Sunday, July 1st. We are coming to you just after uh, today's slate of games. Uh, and Stephanie, first of all, hi. How are you feeling right now? Um, there Was there something in the water? <laughs> like... I, don't know. I feel like it's happened sometimes in tournaments where it goes by days, not by games. So like some days the games are very similar. And today, both games going to penalties, it's like maximum drama. But also I'm like, this feels like it has happened before. Not that I was in any way emotionally prepared for it because I hate all penalties, men's, women's, tournaments, friendlies, or not friendlies, but you know what I mean? Like, it doesn't matter. I hate penalties because it's so stressful. Oh, yeah. It, it, I had no dog in any of these fights, but uh, if I were, again, if I were a fan of one of these teams, I would be just beside myself right now. There'd probably be three me's and both, all three of them would be nervous uh, or at least trying to figure out what just happened. Um, for those of you catching up uh, today uh, on July 1st, there was two round of 16 matches. And in the first one, Russia defeated Spain uh, in one of the, what is statistically one of the biggest upsets in world cup history uh, on penalties and just a few minutes ago, Croatia uh, somehow knocked off De- Denmark. They had a penalty uh, in the uh, 117th minute that was stopped by Kasper Sch- uh, Schmeichel. And then all of a sudden, uh, we went to penalties and three saves by the Croatian keeper uh, to win it for uh, Croatia. They move on to the round of, or to the quarterfinals. And I think when it comes to these penalties, it was. The, the second penalty, let's talk about Croatia and Denmark for a second. It, it, I think it wasn't just the number of penalties that there were. There, there weren't that many, um, the, the minimum five. But I think it was the fact that there were so many ridiculous saves in this penalty shot. I don't think I've seen that in quite a while. I feel so bad for Schmeichel, man. Like he did, if you save one basically in a shootout, you've kind of done your job as a keeper. Right. And he, he put together that only to you know get knocked out what else can you do there's really nothing else he has no other control it's another reason why i hate penalties because there's so much out of the player's control especially goalkeepers i was a goalkeeper in high school i feel a little more affinity for them than field players and god i feel so bad for him yeah so he i mean he stopped he stopped two during the penalty shootout he stopped one in the game yeah um, like when you stop one in the game you kind of like at that moment you're probably thinking if you're if you're a Danish fan, like, yo, this is it. Like we, we have our moment. We, we've, we're, we're, we're back from the brink. Now let's go win this. And then when you tell, if, if you told them, uh, cash for is going to stop two penalty shots in the penalty shootout, you're like, well, this game's over. And somehow they lost. And I think that's just the, the heartbreaking part of this absolutely wonderful tournament. That is the world cup. We saw two, at least two, in e- one in each game where a keeper dived and like they made the foot save on the shot. Yeah, yeah, yeah that's um, wild. There was a couple in in this shootout, but it, the, I mean the 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 one that people will remember most likely will be the one uh, that the Russian keeper did against Spain to win the game um, in the penalty shootout. Just a, an absolutely ridiculous stop. Like you could see he knew he was beat, and somehow. Like, I don't know if he has a size 20 shoe, um, but whatever his shoe size is, like he he he's going to wear those for life because like he somehow got the last toe on the ball and kicked it away for, uh, you know, for the save. I, unbelievable. Just both of these games. Um, 
you know what they say about men with big feet better penalty saves i don't they, know they save they save a lot of penalties <laughs> uh. <laughs> we, we saw uh. two stutter steps as well in croatia denmark but only one of them worked yeah that's true um and, and the thing about it was one on replay it didn't look like a stutter step but mm-hmm. in real time it absolutely did like i don't know what what it was but I think kind of if you're in the moment and you're feeling it, you, you just kind of look at him and you kind of see, hey, this guy is definitely stutter stepping and he's slowing down or, or come to a complete stop or whatever it is. Uh, but on replay, it looked like he went 100 miles an hour and kicked the ball. And, and I think <laughs> it's just kind of us being in that frame of the moment and we're living it frame by frame, essentially. Mm-hmm. No, that's right. I, uh, I was definitely each one. I was like living and dying within each second. Of yeah, time. absolutely. Uh, and, and everything is in slow motion. Uh, the entire like. Air, I think air even stopped for that second penalty shot. So, um, but I, I think this is this is why the tournament is so great. We we had two games, and really, I mean, Spain and Russia. It was kind of a you know back and forth game. There were a few opportunities, and Spain kind of felt like they were. It looked like they were kind of pushing the momentum later on in the match, but they just couldn't seem to get anything on net that was you know worth it for the team to win. And I think that I saw a stat that they completed over 1,000 passes in the game, and Russia only completed 200. So I think the SB Nation recap of it was actually right in that it called, you know, kind of death by a thousand paper cuts, complete over a thousand passes, but to what end? Um, it correctly analyzes like a lot of times people see a possession stat and they assume that the team was attacking for all of that, but Spain using their possession also as a defensive tactic kind of bit them in the ass. Yeah, I mean, and that's the thing. They weren't pressing the issue. They they weren't really doing anything in the final third. And when it came to extra time, I feel like Russia was content in just sitting back and letting Spain just tee off on them. And Spain just never did. Uh, they they kind of left it to, it kind of felt like at you know, a certain point they were just leaving it to the shootout instead of pressing the issue and trying to go for the win. And that that is obviously something that you know any team will tell you that's probably not the best move because you never know anything can happen in a penalty shootout and Spain was on the on the losing end at that point statistically yeah this was an upset but do you know if this was bigger at least numbers wise than Korea knocking out Germany it was apparently by just a few points Mm. um because Russia is the lowest ranked team in (laughs) this tournament um and Spain is I guess relatively on par with with Germany, I think they're in the top ten. So okay. uh, they mentioned that it was the the bet the biggest knockout. Uh, I'm sorry, knockout stage victory uh, upset for a team, but it was the third biggest in history, and it just passed uh, Korea beating Germany a few days ago. Another win for Team Chaos. Although this one, so I I am Team Chaos, but this one didn't super feel good. But like I said to somebody else, like if you want to live by Team Chaos, you have to die by Team Chaos as well. Speaking of Team Chaos, uh, let's talk about Team Putin because um, (laughs) late in the second uh, extra time when it seemed like four or five uh, Spanish players were brought down in the penalty box, they reviewed it for a possible possible penalty and VAR said that it was not a penalty. At that point, in my opinion, uh, when they tried to go to the booth, uh, Putin rang his his red phone and, and pushed the button and said, Niet. Um, and, and said, this is not happening. Uh, go back to what you were doing. Nothing to see here. And the ref was like, okay, fine, play on. Uh, but I, I'm, I'm still kind of 
uh, confused as to why, you know, four or five guys were brought, were pulled down in the box and not a single one of them was warranted uh, a penalty. Uh, I think that's kind of unfortunate for Spain, but it, I mean, we've seen this happen time and time again throughout this tournament. You can't spell Vladimir without VAR. That's true. <laughs> I don't want to go full tin hat. Like Spain, like they had to win it on the field and they clearly didn't. Like if you watch them, it's like, okay. I mean, the way they played, did would you, if they had won, would you have even said like, that's a good win? Or would you have said like, ugh, you know? No, I would have said they escaped. Um, yeah. Yeah, they definitely did not play to win. They Early on they did. But I, I feel like when the second half hit, it just seemed like they were going to, you know, they're like, Russia's going to roll over. They're going to, you know, we're just going to wait for them to get tired. And then that's when we'll strike. And Russia just kept playing. I mean, Russia had the had the home field advantage. And when you have, you're playing the host nation in in their capital, in, the, you know, the stadium that's hosting the final, or, or at least host of the opener, you have to go at them. You can't just sit there and expect them to just roll over. They're not going to do that in front of 70,000 people. They're not going to do that in front of an entire nation um, and, and one president whose name happens to be Putin. They're just not going to do that. And Spain figured that they would. So that is kind of, I mean, I don't know what Spain's philosophy was and what they were trying to do there, but it just didn't work. I'm not not saying that maybe uh, the VAR crew could have been uh, apprehensive about making a call against Russia, but I'm not 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 saying it. I don't know. <laughs> I think you guys know what I mean. Like, yeah, regardless of uh, whatever conspiracy theories, I think you're absolutely right. It's knockout stage. Like, what are you waiting for? Just if, if you're not going to at least try to play direct for some of it, seeing that, you know, your your pass around game is not working, then you kind of deserve what you get a little bit. Sorry, Spain fans. No, I mean, you're absolutely right. And, and I think today, uh, especially more, I mean, you know, the game's, yesterday between uh, with Uruguay and Portugal and then what was the second game France Argentina yeah yeah France Argentina France Argentina was a game to go back to that to that one that was a game that I appreciated because both teams went for the win both teams went hard they they were trying to score they were trying to be flashy about it and they were trying to assert their dominance and it just so happened that France was the better team uh but I, I I think that when you have that compared to some of the games today, some of these teams didn't go for it. And you're, you have to tell yourself, guys, you are in the knockout stage of the world cup. There's no, you know, final match day. Like if you don't win, you're going home. So you got to go for it. And in, in a tournament where you have now 12 teams left, uh, you have to go for it. You have to be assertive. And some of these teams weren't, and that's why they're going home. That's super interesting to me from a psychological point of view, because surely these athletes know that they've been working toward this goal for four years. Mm -hmm. They know they're not going to get another shot for another four years. So what is it like? Because to us, to our eye test, right, you can kind of look at a team and to us, the fan, it seems like they're not really going for it. But to the player on the field, like, what are they thinking? How are they feeling? Is is there fear holding them back? Are they actually going for it? But you know, somehow it's not translating. Like what contributes to days like that where you have, you, for example, a game where it's 1-1 in the first five minutes and then for the rest of the game, you know, or this or Spain-Russia. So that's that's interesting to me, the discrepancy, because surely they want it, but how is it not translating onto the field? Right. And, and it, you know, sometimes it's just not your day. Sometimes you 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 you're, you can see the frustration, like you're, you're making that pass that you know 99 times out of 100 would would go to the you know right place, and it doesn't. Uh, 
the shot that goes up or 90 doesn't um the shot that you know would deflect off of you out of bounds um for a corner kick deflects into the goal for an own goal um i mean you can see sometimes that just that it's not your day but i don't think that was the case today i just think it just seemed like some of these guys just weren't playing up to their full potential you sound like my mom i hate to bring up my mom all the time but whenever people (laughs) talk about like you weren't you know i wouldn't be mad if you had tried your best genuinely but you clearly weren't so i'm disappointed in you (laughs) i mean i will i will not say that they didn't play their you know maximum or give their maximum effort but that doesn't you can give maximum effort and still not play up to your full potential i can give 110 percent and be completely terrible at doing so um and i just think that's what some of these guys did today no, that was me yesterday during pickup soccer. I was given 110%, but, you know, we were we were still goofing. So it happens. Uh, and then what's coming up this week? We got, I mean, what's the, the biggest matchup is probably tomorrow with Brazil versus Mexico. Um, what other matchups are you excited about for the rest of the round of 16? Belgium, Japan, because I, I like Japan, but the way they went through kind of left a bad taste in my mouth. So I don't know how I feel about this game at all. Mm-hmm. And, you know, on the flip side, Belgium is one of those teams that has been really, really playing well. Being, you know, so far this tournament, they're one of the two or three teams that have been playing the best, I, in my opinion. Um, so it'd be interesting to see how that works. Will Lukaku be back? Um, I know he didn't play against England, uh, but that could have been a, you know, we're already through and we're going to rest him kind of situation. Now that it's a knockout stage, can he be on point? Can Eden Hazard be on point? And can Courtois really not make any mistakes? I mean, Japan, they got a lot of rest rotating their players, kind of playing for playing not to lose, not to get another yellow card. So um, we'll we'll see how they use their their big names. I'm always interested in how Honda does just, mm-hmm. you know, it's a, it's a player you, you've watched for a long time. He's like 32 now. So it's his last World Cup. Uh, I, I'm always interested in like older players where it's their last like, oh, God, Iniesta. Didn't that just break your heart? The retirement announcement? Yeah. Yeah. And it, you knew it was coming and yeah. you just like, and it's kind of like, you're like, Hey, Spain, like play for, if you're going to play for some, something, play for this guy. Like he he's given everything to your country and, and now that now he's done, that yeah. era is kind of done that whole, you know, golden generation that they have. He was one of the f- final pieces and now it's, you know, almost on its way out the door. Yeah. To end like that as well. Like it's not mm-hmm. even the final or semis, but to end like that. And he's like, his body's just not going to make it another four years unless they start replacing parts of him like Westworld style. So <laughs> <laughs> I don't know. You don't like Spain loves soccer. Maybe the government's decided that's where they should put their money. That's, that's, you might be right. We'll see. Uh, I, I do know this. Uh, there may be some fireworks going off in the uh, Catalonia area of, of Spain, but for the rest of Spain, probably tomorrow is going to be a rough day at the office for a lot of people. I don't think they're even going to go in. I think a lot of people are going to be like, hey, I can't come in. And a lot of managers are going to be like, hey, me neither. So, you know, <laughs> yeah. That, so Belgium, Japan, that's what I'm interested in. I don't know how I feel about Colombia, England. I think I'm going to go for Colombia there. I'm rooting for Colombia, but it really all depends on whether James can play. I think, and, and I say that knowing that he got pulled out um, in their last game and they ended up winning that game. So um, I feel like with him, there's just an, added dynamic and you know you know the english they're they're very they're very cocky they're very arrogant and they they're already chanting it's coming home um after you know they've been doing that since the first match uh but james is a name that they can stop and be like oh yeah i know that guy Mm -hmm. um he he could do damage um give them something to worry about um you know 
I think England, I don't want to say England's loaded, but they, they have guys who play well together. And I think that's why they've been so successful so far. But in the end, I think if, if Colombia can play some of the football that they have been playing, you know, in the past and, you know, some of the, some of it that they've been playing recently, they can win this game pretty handily and they can make a statement doing so. So it, but I think it all depends on, I think the confidence boost is if Hamas is in that uh, starting 11. So let me ask you this to kind of round out our world cup coverage. We're at a group. We're starting to see some knockout results. It's time to reassess. Who do you have going all the way? I still have Brazil. Uh, Brazil was my favorite at the beginning of the tournament and they are still my favorite uh, because I think that they, when they are clicking, I don't think anyone in this tournament can stop them. Anyone. Um, I think people could come close. I think Belgium is probably close, but, uh, and I think, you know, them meeting in what the quarterfinals or the semifinals could be a ridiculous matchup. But I think Belgium or I think Brazil is the team to beat. And even with Marcelo out, they just plug someone else in because that's what Brazil does. Oh, was that the report on the injury? Marcelo's out? Uh, Well, at least he, he is, he's not out. Um, or they haven't ruled him out for tomorrow, but he, okay. I don't think he's trained uh, since. I think I want France to go all the way. If I'm sticking with team chaos, though, I think maximum chaos is if maybe Mexico wins, but I don't want that. But like I said, you live by team chaos, then you're going to die by team chaos. So we'll see. Mexico's not going to win. That's yeah. just, you know, if you really want to go team chaos, you might pick the winner of Sweden and Switzerland. Hmm. You know what? Because no one expects them to win. So if they win, that would be the ultimate chaos, right? Oh, yeah, yeah. Okay, Switzerland. Switzerland all the way. I guess all I'm right. Swiss now. <laughs> Everyone's Swiss. I like the Swiss. Big yeah. up the Swiss. All righty. All right. So go ahead. No, no, no I was going to prompt you to talk about Sarakan. Oh, okay. Well, um, let's shift to uh, some recent U.S. men's national team news um, that came last week. Uh, late, let, first, let's talk about the the coaching uh decision um well not decision um the extension that dave sarikin uh american interim manager dave sarikin uh received late last week uh that will keep him as the interim coach uh for the men's national team through the end of the year now a lot of pundits are speculating that this will not affect the uh coaching search for a permanent manager and that um and speaking with with grant wall on another podcast the other day he said that most people don't think that Sarakin is getting a quote-unquote audition with this latest uh, extension, but um, I have thoughts on this. But Stephanie, I will start with you. What are your thoughts on this? I'm kind of like, okay, he's not inspiring a ton of confidence in me, but also what's the rush, right? He's bringing along some kids in the national team and looking at the upcoming men's calendar, you know, obviously we've got are we calling it he believes coming up? We've we've got some interesting games coming up, right? Brazil, Mexico, England, Italy, those are all great opponents. But also, what's the rush? And if we happen to lose those games, I think right now there's still as much to be learned by losing as there is by winning, assuming, you know, we don't just, you know, do F all on the field. So I'm kind of fine with them extending it to end of the year just to cover the period when Ernie Stewart, you know, has to transition because he's taking over what, August first? He's fully in the role. Mm-hmm. Um, so maybe they they were just like, okay, it's easier to just say for the rest of the year instead of extending your contract to August 1st or end of August or whatever. Maybe that's just how it worked out. I'm not too worried yet. I mean, knowing U.S. soccer's tendency to 
do the least and kind of get by on inertia, it's a little bit worrisome, like taking in context the history of the program. But right now, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm open to possibilities. I think what's most concerning for me, um, one, is I think that having him in place, yes, it, it, it allows some leeway and some room to to do conduct a search. But I feel like what that means is in the end that the search will lead to a coach that is from MLS and that this extension allows uh, allows them to have a coach in place and not pull an MLS coach in the middle of the season. And that is the most concerning thing for me is that we, we are kind of limiting ourselves because once the World Cup is done, we're going to have a lot of coaches moving very, very quickly. And if any of those coaches are on our radar, then we have to move quickly. And it's not about the rush part. I think I get that argument that we don't need to rush. We we have plenty of time, but in all intent for all intents and purposes, the world cup cycle for 2022 begins in September and you want to have someone in place who can instantly, and it may take a while for that person to get, uh, get their feet wet with the, with the program and get, you know, make their moves to create an impact. But I think that you have to start that process now evaluating guys so that when August hits and, and Ernie's, you know, fully in charge, we don't start the search then. Um, because at that point, a lot of the guys that may be going after internationally will already be off the market. And then we will, we will be limited to, uh, the few that aren't and, you know, MLS coaches. Now that's not to say that an MLS coach would be the, you know, be a, a bad solution to this. It, I think it depends on the coach, uh, who you're talking about, but, if you want to cast a wide net, you cast the wide net as soon as possible and as wide as possible. And I don't think they're doing that by extending Sarakin until the rest of the year. I think that's a fair point that after the World Cup, a lot of your top choices are going to get locked in elsewhere and, you know, for at least a year, probably. Mm-hmm. Um, yeah. And then searching a year from now, that's that's a much tighter timetable. So I, I see your point. I think you're trying to I think you're slowly convincing me that actually this is a giant disaster. Thanks, Donald. <laughs> I don't want it to be a disaster. And, and look, I think I think we discussed this uh, on the first podcast right after the French friendly, um, the, where it was a one-one draw against a team that you have picked to go all the way, at least uh, at this point. And we were like, I hope that doesn't, you know, I hope that match didn't earn him the job. And when this comes out a week or two later, it kind of feels that way a little bit um, that he's getting this extension because he has performed well. And I think that's fine. But I think if there is no way for him to earn this job, then there has to be a point where you have to say, we have to make a decision and we need to bring this guy in so that this guy can evaluate the talent, can set the you know parameters in place of how he wants to run this program and how he wants to run all the, you know, everything that he's involved with and get those people in charge because U.S. soccer has had an issue in the past by just letting things roll until it's, you know, too late. And we don't need to go it fully into, you know, a year into the next cycle before uh, we find a coach. Because if it's not an MLS coach, if it's an international coach, are you going to pluck them away in the middle of the season? Probably not, because we probably don't have the money to do that. So that means you're looking at next June before an international coach would be able to come in here. Who's taking who's taking control of the reins until then? You know, so I think those are the questions that they need to ask, but they need to be doing that now as opposed to after the world cup when when they're asking these questions other guys are signing contracts 
So let me ask you a question because I think you're way more dialed in to where Ernie Stewart is now. Do you mm-hmm. think that he's already kind of lining up dominoes now, or do you think he's just kind of closing up shop on his old job? Do you think like the moment that August 1st hits, he's like, yeah, I've already started like setting up, you know, what needs to be set up, making the phone calls, like uh, looking at resumes, stuff like that. So that, you know, basically he's not starting on August 1st and then having to like get comfortable in the job. And he's actually picking a coach in, you know, September, October, November. Um, But like the moment August 1st hits, he's like, Hey, this is the list. I need you to pick. We're going to have this guy installed, you know, by August 8th or whatever. I think Ernie is doing both. I think he is closing up shop with, with the union. He's, you know, tying up loose ends and, and doing what any, any person would do in the last any any good employee would do in the last few weeks of a job and making sure that they're not leaving uh, a lot of things uh, to the next person. Uh, but at the same time, I you know I I'm failing to recall when it was. I'm pretty sure it was during an interview that Carlos Cordero gave to Fox Sports right at the start of the World Cup. He mentioned that Ernie Stewart was taking calls. He was doing some you know preliminary research on candidates. He was doing some of the duties that this general manager job, uh, this you know uncharted general manager job uh, has. So he, I'm pretty sure he's doing both. He's probably lining up who he wants to talk to. He's probably talking to a couple of them off the record or, or even on the record, whatever it is about their interest in, in the position. And I think we've had some coaches come out and say that they have been contacted by us soccer. It may not have been Stewart, but, but with, by someone within that uh, uh, within the office. And I do think that when August 1st hits, it's not going to be, we're starting this search. But I think if we aren't really fully getting involved in the search bef- until then, that still is a window of two weeks that, you know, some candidates may be off the table by the time that search starts, which is why you kind of do this stuff now when the World Cup is done. That's when they need to be saying, hey, if it's, you know, I'm throwing out examples here, people, Yogi Low, like, get him on the phone. Juan Carlos Osorio, get him on the phone. You know, Gus, Gus Hedding, get him on the phone. Like, those guys are going to be sought after highly sought after and if you if you stumble you're not going to get those candidates that you want or you may not be able to have that wide net where you can narrow down to the you know three or four guys that you want and and have the people that are the 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 most you know qualified for your program so i think they need to identify that now hopefully he's working on it i think he might be um knowing ernie stewart he he's really uh detailed oriented and i think that is He's probably, you know, doing that as we speak. But uh, I think as a federation, the the federation just needs to be on, in in the business of acting, you know, efficiently and and acting in a way that makes you feel that they are trying to bring the changes that they say they're trying to change, trying to bring. I think that's also fair, like needing to signal that they are trying to be a, a progressive, forward-thinking federation. Signals matter to a mm-hmm. certain extent. And not just to the fan base, but to the larger international soccer community. So I think that's fair. I think you have some good points. I'm, you know, I have a lot on my plate emotionally right now. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so just trying to like not be too worried about any of that coaching situation. But, you know, you're talking me into adding to my anxiety pile once again. So, yeah. And I think really it, when it comes down to like really the most important thing for for the team is that I think the players probably want to know what's going on. You know, like uh, we we know Tim Weah is very on board the the Sarakin train. Um, Sarakin's given him his shot and he's taken advantage of it uh, so far. I think that is 
you know, expected. And I think, you know, he wants to be able to develop and grow as a player. He wants to know who's going to be in charge to help him do that and give him, you know, the feedback that, that he needs to blossom. And I, you know, with these players, if we're just kind of going through the motions and evaluating talent, there's going to be a point where we got to say, okay, who is our A team? Who is our B team? How, how do these guys play? You know, who's the best, you know, 11, who is the 11 that works the best together? Um, all of those are questions for the next next guy. Real quick, speaking of Tim Weah, what do you think of this quote where he said, uh, that is my goal to potentially be the first American Ballon d'Or winner? Uh, I, I think it's great. Um, let me rephrase. I think it's fantastic. I think we need more players that think that way. Um, I think in the end, we you know, we're, we're still a young footballing nation when it comes to when you compare it to the rest of the world. Yeah. We have a, you know, a hundred years of history, but our history is really defined by 1990 on. And if you have a guy like that, who's young, who, who says he wants to win the Blonde or one day. And if he does that sort of thing, not only will signify a, a you know, a great achievement for American soccer, but it, at that point, the perception will have changed about American soccer players abroad um, that will create more opportunities for American players to play anywhere. Um, more, more people will be scouting, you know, MLS and, and USL and, and other leagues here for talent, as opposed to us g- doing the opposite, going to these leagues and finding their talent and trying to bring them to the United States to bolster our, our, our ranks. I, I think all of that it makes sense. And I think you want to have players who want to be the best at what they do and, I think he has the right mentality in thinking, I want to work hard enough so that one day I can also hold up this trophy, uh, just like some of the greats have, including his dad. Yeah, I think it's important to read the actual quote. Once I work hard, and that is my goal, to potentially be the first American Ballon d'Or winner. I love that attitude because it's not him saying, oh, I will. Although if he had said mm-hmm. that, I would have been like, hey, more power to you. Go, on to, go, go for it, kid. You like, know what? Like, the truth will out on the field. So if you're going to be cocky, you're either going to back it up or you're not. It's a, it's a very cruel sport that way, or sometimes mm-hmm. very fair. So I'm not bothered if someone has that at you, but it's, that says to me, he's like, he has a goal and he thinks he can achieve it. And I want all young players for us soccer to have that attitude. It's important to be realistic about your skills, but at the same time, you know, to to have a goal like that, it's something I really appreciate. Ambition is something to really appreciate. Mm-hmm. I've, I've appreciated it a lot more because I don't know how much people have been following um, the football ferns, New Zealand's women's national team. They're currently in a standoff with their federation. Uh, they're protesting their coach because he flat out basically said that New Zealand, the women's side anyway, could never compete with the rest of the world ever, ever. And it's like, what a shitty thing to say about your own team. So I love a federation coaches and players who come in and clearly have ambitions and say, no, there's no limit to what we can do. Yeah, absolutely. And, you know, honestly, it'd be great if, you know, three, four five years from now, we're talking about whether, you know, Christian Pulisic or Tim Weah or Weston McKinney could possibly win the Blonde or in that year, you know, like that they're all up for, you know, have are qualified for it and and have the have the stats to back it up and are getting some good talk about it like that would be a dream scenario right because that would put american soccer on the map and say hey americans are more than just you know power and pace and in all these other you know words that they use to describe us and we would be viewed as a as a nation that produces excellent world-class football players and i think that is what you want to see 
so I, I, I agree with you. I love the ambition. And if that means that he's uh, working hard to try and get into the, you know, 18 and then the 11 every week for PSG, like, again, that is going to open so many doors for everyone else, um, not just him, uh, and really show that, you know, Americans can produce great players. I'll, I'll call it right now. 2026, Christian Pulisic is going to be one of the nominees. Ooh, the I like it. I'll call right now. And then does he lead uh, lead the team out onto the field for the opening match as the captain? Yeah, why not? There we go. All right. I like it. Uh, anything else we need to talk about? It's been kind of a, a World Cup dominated week. Yeah, absolutely. They're, now that it's uh, July, I think on the women's side, at least they're probably going to start looking towards Tournament of Nations because that's sort of a, a trial, I think, for World Cup qualifying squad. They have two more friendlies after that against Chile, but that's Chile. And this is Japan, Australia, Brazil. So you do well in this tournament. That's July 26th through early August, August 2nd. August 2nd. Mm-hmm. Yep. You do well in this tournament. You've probably earned a spot on a World Cup qualifying roster. You do well in World Cup qualifying. Who knows what could happen France 2019. I mean, a year is a long timeline, but these are important milestones that we're starting to approach. So I think just people should keep that in mind. There's probably a couple more weeks of NWSL play maybe, but I think by now, Jalalis probably has it in her head 90, 95% who's going to be on this roster. So we'll see. It's probably coming down to, you know, whether there's some nagging injuries that that occur between now and then uh, to keep players off as opposed to anything, you know, anyone really playing themselves back onto a roster, right? Yeah, I think right now, key players who you want to think about injury-wise, that Sam Mewis, Tobin Heath had to be out for the last Portland game. Kelly O'Hare is still out, and she's not coming back until sometime in July, according to Laura Harvey for uh, Utah. So a lot of key injuries. Morgan Bryan also is another one to keep an eye on up in Chicago. So yeah, there's actually a lot of key players here where we might actually see some some of the younger kids or the fringe players maybe getting a shot. And if they do well over three games, who knows? Yeah, I think uh, building up to that, you know, Women's World Cup qualifying roster uh, in October, uh, who do you see of the major names that you would think is on the outside looking in if we've had to pick it today? And not necessarily due to injury, just based on the on the numbers. Let's see who is on the outside looking in right now. I might say uh Sofia Huerta is kind of on the outside looking in because they can't seem to find a spot for her. Joalis obviously wants her to fill in at fullback, but as our fullbacks get healthy, like Casey Short just came back, once Kelly O'Hare is healthy, what does that mean for Sofia Huerta? And then our forward pools pretty pretty filled in right now, so what are they going to do with her? Her only saving grace here, I think, is that she's versatile. I think she can go in the midfield as well. Um, so that might be interesting, especially with uh, Tobin Heath out and Megan Rapino getting older. You might want to have someone kind of lined up. Um, I think Savannah McCaskill's on the outside looking in. I'm really up on this kid. She's also another versatile player. She can be a forward, a midfielder. She can be a 10, almost a true 10. But at the same time, she's young and she kind of had a bad game the last time she played for the national team. So the the consistency is yet to be seen. It needs more time. Mm-hmm. And then Amy Rodriguez, I think, is one you kind of have to talk about. She made a comeback. She um, did her ACL in the first game of the NWSL season last year, which was it was tragic. Now she's back. She's older, but she's still a pacey, kind of clever forward who can, you know, help with your holdup play. She can also break lines. So that might be interesting to see if A-Rod can break in for one last one last shot. Uh, I mean, speaking of Amy Rodriguez, you actually reminded me uh, 
a couple weeks ago, we were talking about uh, Heather O'Reilly and her prospects of coming back uh, to the NWSL. And that happened a couple days ago. She, uh, I guess, worked out, they worked out a deal. Uh, she will be with the North Carolina Courage, which is something that I think we both expected. Yeah, Utah obviously held her rights, which is crazy. You shouldn't be able to hold a player's rights because she was gone all last season. So, mm-hmm. you know, you would expect maybe she would enter free agency or something. But Utah still held her rights. They worked out a deal because I think she said she wouldn't go anywhere. It's my speculation that she wouldn't go anywhere but North Carolina. She's got a home there, like you said in our last episode. She's got a lot of roots. Um, it's very interesting because obviously she's retired from the national team, but she definitely can still be a killer at the club level. And I think she, you know, based on her fitness and she's never really had like a a devastating injury that I can recall, especially not recently, her body's still pretty on an even keel. So she could have another two, three good years of club soccer left in her, especially if they're playing here for 30 or 60 minutes instead of full 90s. Mm -hmm. That 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 would be wild if like somehow circumstances arranged that Heather O'Reilly had to come back into the national team fold. I mean, we've seen it before. uh, I don't don't want to think about those circumstances, though, because I think it means that like three or four key players are injured. Yeah, I I I agree with you there, but uh, you never. I mean, I feel like this move comes, you know, coming back, and if she's clicking, you know, there may be a point where you say, "Hey, maybe Heather Riley still's got something left for the national team." Uh, I don't know if that's what Jill Ellis is thinking, or I don't know if Heather Riley is in that mindset. If she's just just looking to play soccer. yeah, she wouldn't be the first player who they brought along because she had intangibles like leadership, but wasn't necessarily producing on the field, Abby Wambach. Mm-hmm. Mm, I don't necessarily approve of that move, but you know, I think Heo at this point in her career definitely has more to offer on the field than Abby Wambach did, you know, in twenty fifteen. Yeah, I agree with that. Uh anything else that we gotta cover? Nope, just the creeping dread that <laughs> the World Cup is going to drive my blood pressure through the roof yeah well i i i've been taking blood pressure pills so um because i i thought the u.s was going to be in it and not that they're not but i still kind of need them because all these games have been really exciting <laughs> so uh hopefully that will continue over the next few days i i think for those of you out there uh this coming week obviously is the fourth of july um so we will be off this week because we like celebrating holidays too um, so we will probably check you next week, uh, after the holiday, but, uh, for now, Steph, you got anything else? No, just, I don't know now that you've said that you want Brazil to go all the way. If the petty person in me is like, well, I want Mexico to knock them out now. That's all I got. Don't be petty when it comes to Mexico. Be petty all right. later on. All right. all right. That's, that's fair. That's fair. <laughs> all right. I think that does it for us here, guys. Uh, episode three of the stars and stripes FC podcast. Uh, For Stephanie, uh, I am Donald. We will check you after the holiday. Happy 4th, and uh, we'll see you soon.